uh, Elder DJ, would you like to dedicate the merit of the Dharma talk that's coming? I hope you feel really proud, DJ, that you are the elder in our community. That's like a really big honor for us and for you. Yeah? Yeah, and then I hang out with such neat younger people. <laughs> I dedicate the Dharma talk to all of us here that um, are here because we're dealing with a lot of difficult things out in the world and um, we have our hearts already open to finding our way to stay strong and positive and uh, forces of that same positive energy out there in the world, you know, in our families, our communities, and, and whatever, um, however we work in the world to bring about peace and ease and justice among us. I love to begin with the quote of Thomas Merton and his own experience of um, uh, living in community and that he said uh, to his um, community of brethren, if you could only see how beautiful you really were. You would bow down and kneel to each um, to each person, including yourself. And it takes so much vulnerability to reclaim that reality of ourselves, that if we were only to see uh, how beautiful we really were, we would bow down to ourselves and we could say that this whole practice is taking that leap of faith over and over again. And it's a leap of faith because I know so many of us in this room, including myself, have had so many experiences as a child, as a woman, as queer, as Jewish, as um, sometimes more disabled, um, at, as an undocumented immigrant. Um, that reflect back an image of myself that is um, belittled and uh, blind to the beauty that I and we are. And in the defense 
not having the training or education in defense, somehow the mind believes that if we take those messages on and believe them, that somehow we're defending ourselves. That if we, if we mm. believe it, then maybe we can't be hurt so much. I, I'm not quite sure how it works exactly yet, but I have noticed that inside of myself sometimes, uh, earlier on in my life, that if I just hated myself enough, that somehow that would protect me from other people's hatred and from my own disappointment and deep sadness and grief. And at the same time though, and this is what feels so miraculous to me about that talk that Thomas Merton gave, is that even in that reality, something inside of us knows that there's another path and way. It's just that it's it I I knew it but I didn't know what it was or how it was. I just knew something. And um, because in that self hatred we forget in taking on unconsciously as children all those messages that we took. Um, we forget. In going through a school system, I don't know about your school system, but I went to a primary school run by an Afrikaner in South Africa, and it was horrible, you know? And so, and we take all of that on, even if something isn't directed personally at us, just living in a culture of racism, just that, even if we're those of us who are white and privileged are protected, that hatred is taken in. And true for um, xenophobia and all the hatred that's directed at different groups. So in that context, yet what feels miraculous is that there is a search. And, um, And it's so amazing, I, uh, a student came to see me who was suicidal and she was cutting herself and, and in tremendous amount of pain and, and um, struggling, really struggling. So she came all the way to Dharmadena to see me the center where I am in Joshua Tree. And I told her to put her head on my lap. And I stroked her head. And she started by saying how much she hated her father. He had been just deeply disrespectful and nasty and everything else and how she wanted to die, and I was like, yeah, it makes sense. Everything you're feeling makes sense. And if you 
you wouldn't be alive in a way if you weren't feeling those feelings because it makes sense to feel them. And I want to say that for each one of us, in those places that feels despairing or I can't do it or I want to die or I want to hurt myself or I want to hurt someone else, or I can't relate, I feel disconnected to the world, whatever it is. And so I kept stroking her, just saying, of course, of course. And uh, she was crying. And then at some point, she felt that I was stroking her that her head was on my lap and I was stroking her. Something changed. And that's the power of love. And we know that. We know that it's a great healer and that we're like a multitude of diamonds in each facet needs that unconditional caring. And it's not a caring that rejects what is difficult, because what is difficult is real for all of us. We've lived through and continue to live through so much. that we both can give to each other and to ourselves becomes the environment in which how those energies are held begins to change. And the first thing that changes depends on the acknowledgement and acceptance that however we're feeling is okay. Whatever it is we're feeling is okay. Because we're historical beings and all the experiences we've had have been the conditions for the feelings that we feel. It's not because we're bad people or failures or any of that. It's because actually we're alive and that we're sensitive human beings, that we feel the unwholesome, that's what the Buddha calls it. And that, that was one big, one a kind of overarching framework. But I, I want to name it in a, a coming in from a different gateway and to say everything that we feel makes sense. And there's not any feeling, no matter how repetitive and deeply rooted, that doesn't make sense. And I want to acknowledge that. And we don't often know all our conditions because we aren't psychic in the ways the Buddha was or other deep practitioners are. But 
the Buddha said he saw the karma of each person, which is saying that he saw the conditions that gave rise to all the feelings. And that it's a lawful, it's lawful. And so the lawfulness is saying, I don't exactly understand everything, but I understand that these feelings have an origin in conditions. And the why that's important is because the very first beautiful energy that's possible to call into being is acceptance. Is acceptance and understanding for whatever is happening. And that one of the qualities of the unwholesome energies, that is to say, all those energies that we have inherited from those conditions have as a as a concomitant or as a as a uh, what do, you, what do you call it when a fungus feeds on something else? Or a Symbiotic or parasitic? Yes, parasitic relationship to those energies of anger, hatred, inadequacy, insufficiency, revenge, all those feelings, greed, compulsion, obsession. Is the feeling that we shouldn't be having those feelings that something's wrong with us for having the feelings that we have. That, that, that is to say that those energies have with them this, uh, this sort of turning towards ourselves in judgment. And so not only are we carrying these energies and this inheritance, it's we it those that with that is a judgment that we shouldn't be having what we're what feelings we're having that we shouldn't be wherever we are in any moment that somehow we should be better or different and that it's not okay however we are in the moment and so on this healing journey, both internally and externally, the first radical relationship we establish is this, is this willingness to challenge the judgment, the judgment that we have of ourselves because it's never true, and the judgment we have of others. And unless we challenge the judgment, there's no path of healing and liberation. And it takes incredible vulnerability because when we challenge that judgment and when we're willing to open up rather than the closing off and resistance that happens with the judgment, then there's all this pain. or whatever it is, because we each carry something different. And there are rare human beings
who are able to open to that pain all at once and be liberated. Eckhart Tolle is one of them. For most of us, it's a path. It's a path of building our capacity to hold pain. And so some of our journey is both acknowledging what's living inside of us, and also saying, and I want you to know, I can't hold all of you now, but I'm building my strength so I might be able to hold you in the future. And that's always true of some time in our lives that we can't, that we just, I can't, I can't hold this right now. And how beautiful to begin to respect ourselves enough to say, I can't. And whatever is a break for us, whatever is a break, in the understanding we're taking a break to then become resilient, is fine with me personally. And so we build, and then we come back, and we build, and we come back. And I, I, um, so I, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned that I had um, been bitten by, I mentioned in my newsletter, I'd been bitten by a black widow spider. And I was on retreat when I was bitten. I, I, this is such a teaching. So I, um, we have a new manager at Dharmadena and, and who's learning, still learning. And I noticed some of the plants were dying. They hadn't been watered in a while. And, in, I, and judgment took over. And I was like, oh my God, those plants are dying. I'm getting the hose. And in that energy, you know, of not being so aware, I brushed across a plant that must have had a very mature black widow spider. Because after I watered the plants, I'm like, oh my God, what is that sensation? In my buttock, it's like a weird sensation of like very painful and itchy at the same time. And I got a mirror and I looked, and I'm like, oh my God, that looks like a snake bite. It had two big holes, I had two big holes in my, in my buttocks, and I like, I have to get, go online, and, and like, you know, reptiles and spiders of the desert, and there was the bite mark of the black widow spider. I had a perfect <laughs> bite mark of the black widow spider, and uh, so of course I read up about it, and, and then experienced the symptoms, intense cramps, and foreshortening and contraction of muscles and tendons, nausea, confusion, and um, everywhere was cramping. And as though I was being stunned by bees everywhere, eyelids, lips, ears, everywhere. Like, like not just like a little prick, but like, like just as, 
I knew I wasn't being stung by bees because I was in my house. I kept looking because it was so intense. It was impossible not to. That must be a bee. <laughs> And then it was such a practice of renunciation to say, this is my retreat, which is for many times just no mindfulness, just this is, this is it. And as soon as I renounced these ideas of I, what I think my retreat should have been, and did what it was. I spent hours sometimes darning because I could focus on the needle going into the clock, and that was something I could do. And just going from there, and I and I got then this incredible blessing of renunciation, of thinking that we should be different than we are, of thinking of uh, that our lives should be different, and of meeting however it is, as it is. And in that field of acceptance, then of course comes love. And, I, and it was so liberating to me. And I want to frame it because I'm a teacher and I haven't done a self-retreat for three years. And this was three weeks where I'm like, finally I'm doing a self-retreat. And oh, I'm so excited and I can do the formal practice. And, and it was totally different. Mm. And so we meet our capacity. We meet our capacity as we are, whatever it is, and we honor it. And so there I am in the rocking chair, darling, and um, and uh, you know. And the other thing that I did, which of course, and I had to go through a judgment around it, is I learned to do um, qigong through the computer. Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't quite do walking meditation because of my nausea. But for some reason I could do Qigong. So I learned how to do Qigong through some wonderful teacher on the computer, on YouTube. <laughs> and I did Qigong. So anyway. Um, so this willingness to and the vulnerability to both hold those energies that, are, that make so much sense and are so difficult to hold. And as we challenge the judgment to come to accept how we are, pacing ourselves on that journey, right? And then the other half, the other half of what supports and 
builds this capacity. And I can only say to you this because I've said the same things over and over again and sometimes people come to me and say, I, maybe you said this before, but I just heard you. And so in honor of that, I want to say that we are so um, conditioned not to see our beautiful for the, our beauty for the same reason that we hold all the pain that we do, that it goes together. And that such an important practice is to turn towards the beautiful qualities that live inside of us because they do. Because they do. In each one of us. And part of the responsibility of, and I'm saying responsibility, knowingly using that word, of being given the life we've been given, of that gift of saying, here, Calvin, is life, that you are being given to caretake and learn and come to fruition with. Each one of us is given that as a great blessing, as an incredible blessing. And part of that caretaking means honoring how magnificent we really are, which is what Thomas Merton is inviting us to. And that means dwelling and contemplating everything that is beautiful about us. Our generosity, our virtue, our love, our patience, our truthfulness, our resilience, our compassion, our determination, our wisdom. Because without those energies, you wouldn't be sitting here. And that's a reflection also of who we are. How many times do you, at the end of the day, contemplate what you've done, appreciate it, feel joy with your efforts? And there's a Jewish expression, nachis, take nachis, take, 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 enjoy the, the efforts of your day. And you know, and I and I said so often, it's like even if you can't find anything, and the contemplation is, did you steal five billion worth of mortgages from homeowners? Did you know? Can you appreciate your virtue in doing that? Because some people did. I mean. But I'm serious, because that virtue is not acknowledged by us. And even if we are moved, as I talked about in, on Wednesday, in a, in, 
unadulterated revenge to, uh, against the ants in my case, that at the very same time, I can have compassion for myself. So there is this practice of turning towards what is beautiful inside of us. Particularly, the Buddha says, our generosity and seeing it, and our virtue, our virtue and our generosity particularly, to acknowledge over and over again the gift we're giving ourselves and each other. And it could be as simple as walking out of this room and saying, I did not steal one of those books or, or birds. <laughs> I'm serious. Because if, like me, as a teenager, you stole a lot, then you know what a gift it is that you are refraining from that. Or from someone's belongings. Right? But we get so down on ourselves all the time, we don't acknowledge that virtue. And then, and this is because I know I'm, and then in acknowledging that virtue, in seeing what's beautiful about ourselves, that becomes the field in which we acknowledge where there isn't virtue with compassion. If we can't acknowledge that virtue and appreciate the blessing of it and the power of the power of life in it then when we perceive and acknowledge uh, um, the the budget going to the military by billions and not in schools and the secretary of it or the people in power in different countries not even this country and what's happening in the world if we aren't situated in that virtue, then we can't understand and hold the lack of virtue in other people with caring and compassion. We have to be situated in our own acknowledgement of the power of that inside of us. Because then otherwise it just falls into feeling um, depressed and disempowered. <laughs> But it's the connection with the virtue and the strength of knowing that's the path that allows us to hold the suffering when there isn't virtue. Yeah? And so how can it be here? I have to read this for you. How can it be? You know this, I love her. Etta Hillman, the woman who wrote a diary when she right before she was arrested and, and, um, and, uh, in, and put in uh, Auschwitz. And uh, this is what she says. How exotic the jasmine looks, so delicate and dazzling against the mud-brown walls. I can't take in how beautiful this jasmine is, but there is no need to. It is simply enough to believe in miracles in the 20th century 
and I do, even though the lice will be eating me up before long. I often see poisonous green smoke. I am with the hungry and the ill-treated and the dying every day. Mm. But I am also with the jasmine and with that piece of sky beyond my window. There is room for everything in a single life. And then this, in honor of Mandela, because uh, it is, when was his birthday? I forget. Wednesday. This is from his book, Long Walk to Freedom. Ten days before the vote, Mr. de Klerk and I, who was the I'm Prime Minister of South Africa at the time, and I held our single television debate. I had been a fair debater at Fort Howry, which was the only university in South Africa where Africans could go. And in my early years in the organization, I had engaged in many impassioned debates on the platform. On Robben Island, the prison where he was, we had honed our debating skills while we chipped away at limestone. I was confident, but the day before we held a mock debate in which the journalist Alistair Sparks ably performed as Mr. de Klerk, too ably according to my campaign advisors, for they chided me for speaking too slowly and not aggressively enough. When the time came for the actual debate, however, I attacked the Nationalist Party quite firmly. I accused the Nationalist Party of fanning race hatred between coloreds and Africans, coloreds are Indians, East Asian Indians, in the Cape by distributing an inflammatory comic book that said the ANC's slogan was kill a colored, kill a farmer. There is no organization in this country as divisive as the new National Party, I declared. When Mr. de Klerk criticized the ANC's plan to spend billions of dollars on housing and social programs, I scolded him, saying he was alarmed that we would have done, that we would have to devote so many of our resources to black. But as the debate was nearing an end, I felt I'd been too harsh with the man who would be my partner in a government of national unity. In summation, I said, the exchanges between de Klerk and me should not obscure one important fact. I think we are a shining example as the entire world of people drawn from different racial groups who have a common loyalty, a common love to their common country. I think we are a shining example to the entire world of people. In spite of the criticism of Mr. Clerk, I said, and then looked at him, Sir, you are one of those I rely upon. We are going to face the problem of this country together. At which point I reached over to take his hand and said, I am proud to hold your hand 
for us to go forward. Holding the both and, the caring and respect and love for human being as well as the hearts of delusion and ignorance of the policies of the clerk and the Nationalist Party. May we too hold all aspects of ourselves, the pain and self-hatred or judgment or confusion or homelessness or compulsions and obsessions or control or whatever um, I haven't named but you can name. Without judgment and with deep respect and also the beautiful energies that live inside of us. Our brilliance, our wisdom, our generosity, our caring, our devotion to practice, to this organization, to others that we're part of, our devotion to learning to care. I know each one of us is devoted to learning that. And as we are, may we also be patient with ourselves because it's a long journey. Maybe so.